Let's pray together again, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of Mark chapter 2, Jesus, and your uh, reminder here of who you are and why you came. We pray, God, that you take this time now and use it to teach us and shape us and encourage us and challenge and convict us. Lord, have your way by your spirit uh, in our hearts and lives. We pray you'd uh, help us to leave uh, changed this morning because of our time with you in your presence and in your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, once again, welcome to FBC. We're so glad that you are here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and just want to welcome you and invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with us in that Bible to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. That's where we're going to be. We'll have the words on the screen, though, if you need it. As a church family, we want to uh, practice and move towards these four core commitments that we talk about regularly. Worship, connect, grow, and go. We want to worship God passionately, connect with others in fellowship, grow in our relationship with Christ to maturity, and go and engage the needs of the world. Uh, So we're going to continue as a church family to move towards those targets here in this new year. And a special way that we get to worship is by coming together, singing, praying once a week, and opening up God's Word and studying it as a church family. And so that's exactly what we're going to do in Mark chapter 2. This is week number two of our gospel-shaped relationships series where we're talking about how does the gospel, how does the good news about Jesus transform and impact every interaction we have? How do we see the gospel and the message of scripture not just as something for later that gets us to eternal life one day, but something that uh, impacts and invades our life now and gives us a whole new way of navigating relationships. We talked about the power of relationships a little bit last week, right, as we started, how we are inescapably relational beings, how we are made in the image of God who is himself relational, and often our thriving, our health is tied to the substance of our relationships. Last week, we talked about how often our greatest frustrations in life or our deepest wounds in life come from relationships gone wrong. But on the other side, often our greatest moments of joy and meaning and purpose and healing in life come in the context of relationships. So it's a big topic here. And last week, we talked about, of course, the foundation of it all, our relationship with God. We spent a whole week talking about how the gospel tells, what the gospel tells us about how we can relate and interact with God through the work of Christ. This morning, we're going to talk about our relationship with ourselves. As the great modern theologian Dr. Seuss put it in Oh, the Places You'll Go, he said, All alone, whether you like it or not, alone will be something you'll be quite a lot. So when you're alone, and it's just you and yourself, how do you relate with yourself? Think about yourself. Talk to yourself. What does your self-talk sound like? How do you think about yourself? 
Now, if you're tempted now to think that this just sounds like some pop psychology, self-help guru book, new age sort of stuff more than it does the Bible, let me offer a quote from the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who if you know Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his work, he's anything but squishy and cuddly and new agey, okay? So listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let's read that again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? See, he explains that we have all these thoughts and impulses that that come to us, and it feels like they don't originate with us. We didn't uh, choose to think them, and yet there they are, these thoughts in our minds. It's you talking to you. We're listening to ourselves, saying in our self-talk all kinds of things. Most of those things, or many of those things, are untrue or unhelpful or negative. They, They get us all bent out of shape for various Reasons And instead, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says what we need to be doing is talking to ourselves. And he uses the example of Psalm chapter 42, where David says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Where David is speaking in Psalm 42 to his own soul, speaking to himself, reminding himself what is true, what the scriptures say, what the gospel tells us about who God is and who we are. And so underlying this is this assumption, this reality that we have a relationship with ourselves. We listen to ourselves, we talk to ourselves, and so we need to have a biblically formed and gospel-shaped view of the self. Right? Who are you? What is true about you? What does the Bible have to say? And so Mark chapter 2 gives us this really helpful picture of a few key pieces of our identity and who we are. So let's look at the text again. Pastor Ian read it for us, but Mark 2, verse 13, to set the stage, says this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here we are in Mark chapter 2. We're early on in the ministry of Jesus. You can tell because he's still calling his disciples, right? We see in verse 14, he calls Levi to come and follow him. And then Jesus goes to a dinner party at Levi's house with many tax collectors and sinners. This is a move that you see scandalizes the religious leaders, as you see the teachers of the law in verse 16 asking, why is Jesus hanging out with those people? Why is he spending time with those kinds of people? You see, it wasn't appropriate for a rabbi, a religious leader, a holy man like Jesus to fellowship with tax collectors 
and sinners. Tax collectors, we, uh, that title might not mean a lot to us in the modern day, but if you know about what a tax collector was in the ancient world, then you know this was not a dignified job. Tax collectors like Levi in verse 14 were really despised by the Jewish people because they were men who collected various taxes and tolls and customs for the Roman Empire. They were working for the enemy. So you have the the Roman Empire, this external occupying force. They were the bad guys, essentially. And you had the Jews who, who faced oppression at their hands. And the Jewish tax collectors then were traitors because they were helping out the bad guys working for the Romans. Not only that, but the whole system was corrupt. And so there wasn't a lot of regulation. And so the tax collectors were able to ask for a little more money than was required from the people. And they would keep a little bit extra for themselves and send the rest off to Rome. So these tax collectors, they're traitors, they're dishonest, they're crooks, they were despised men working for the enemy. Now, you see then in verse 14, it's a big deal that Jesus, this rabbi, calls Levi to follow him. And maybe you're thinking, okay, you know, we can forgive Jesus for that one lapse in judgment. You know, that was a poor decision, Jesus. And maybe he got some bad intel from his scouting department, you know, didn't know all the story about Matthew, or excuse me, about Levi, also called Matthew. But, but look what happens next. Okay, there's more. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So it's not like, hey, we got this one temporary you know, lapse in judgment. He calls a tax collector to follow him. No, now he's at the home of a tax collector eating dinner with how many? Many tax collectors and sinners. Again, not just tax collectors, but now sinners. This kind of grab bag term for a whole assortment of wayward, unclean, immoral people. I mean, picture the scene. They're at this dinner party, it's probably, I would imagine it's loud, it's noisy. I would imagine there's, uh, it's not a very proper and refined dinner party. There's probably some you know, choice words and unsavory language being used, probably some coarse joking, probably some uh, bodily functions that are unwelcomed at dinner time were coming out there, probably some salty language, probably some alcohol, maybe some long hair, maybe some of them had beards. I mean, it was a sketchy crowd, okay? Picture it. And notice that Jesus is, is visibly spending time with these people, and he's not discreet either about how he called Levi, right? Think again about verse 14. Where is Levi when Jesus calls him? Well, it says he's out at his tax collector's booth. He's out in public, and so it wasn't as if, you know, Jesus, you know, loved Levi and had a soft spot for the tax collectors, but he didn't want to, you know, ruffle feathers. So like one night after work, you know, Matt or Levi was leaving the tax collector's booth, and Jesus was in like a dark alley and kind of found him and was like, hey, do you want to follow me? I know you're a tax collector, and I know other people wouldn't like this, but can, you can come and hang out with us. Just don't tell anybody. Don't make a big deal about it. No, it was public. It was visible. It was Levi, come. As you can see, people know about it. The religious leaders have their feathers ruffled about it. And if you think maybe uh, maybe we're making too big a deal about this, look, the text makes it really clear 
what it wants us to see. It repeats three times who is around Jesus. Once in verse 15, it's tax collectors and sinners. Then twice in verse 16, it's tax collectors and sinners. And then again, it's tax collectors and sinners. So who's around Jesus? Tax collectors and sinners. Now, maybe here, though, you're coming from another place, and you're like, well, based on what I know of Jesus, he's a pretty gracious, kind, loving guy. And so he's going to stand up for his new friends, and he's going to tell off these bully Pharisees, and he's going to tell off these religious people and say, hey, don't point out their sin. They're not sinners. They're my friends. Don't be so mean to them. Is that what he says? Not exactly. Look what he says, verse 16 and 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, here it is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So notice, he doesn't say, hey, they're not sinners. They're not so bad. Or, or, you know, sin is really just this crusty religious word. And we've moved past kind of those outdated concepts of sin. And so, you know, God doesn't have any problem with you, sin or no sin, whatever. He doesn't say that. He says sinners, yeah, they're sinners. That's why I'm here. I've come to call sinners. They're not healthy. They're sick. They're not righteous. They are sinners. No argument there. But that's why I'm here, to call them. I always wonder if the dinner party crowd at that moment was like, wait, what did he just say about us? What, what did he just call us? I'm not sure I like that. He says they're sinners. And so as we think about our relationship with ourselves, how to think about ourselves. One of, one of the first key pillars that the scriptures gives us in thinking about who we are, the first is we are sinners. The Bible describes how we in our thoughts and our words and in our deeds, we disobey God. We break the commands of God. We rebel against God. We want to be our own God and sit on the throne ourselves and determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. And so sin is this uh, breaking of the law, crossing a line, so to speak, when God says, hey, don't lie, cheat, steal. We lie and cheat and steal. And when we do those actions, that is sin. But also sin is this uh, posture of the heart where we stand as rebels before God and say, you know what, we're going to do things our own way. I'm in charge here. It's the self turned inward. And not only do we cause all sorts of destruction and damage in God's world, we dishonor and rebel against God himself. It's important to note, though, at this point, that this isn't the, the first picture of humanity that we get. We, we don't you know, start on page one with sinful humans. We start on page 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, with humans created in the image of God, our first parents, Adam and Eve. The fall doesn't come until chapter 3. And so we see that we were created in the image of God, called to follow God, called to obey God, and then 
we fell into sin. Our first parents sinned, and thus we then ever since have been sinners by, by nature, we've inherited, and sinners by choice. Now, maybe you say, well, sure, those tax collectors and sinners were sinners. You know, there are a few bad apples that Jesus chose to hung out with, but that's not representative of everybody. Let's not get carried away. But the book of Romans and the New Testament teaches us that we all have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you look closer at that word in the Greek, the word all means all. It's everybody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. And so I don't think Jesus here is saying to the Pharisees, Yeah, it's the sick who need a doctor, so I came for that small select group of people. But then there's the righteous who don't really need me, like you good upstanding people, Pharisees. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think his point is that we all need him. And there are some of us who think that we're righteous and healthy and can stand before God on our own one day, on our own merit. And yet Jesus shows us this is not the case. And see, we have to have an accurate diagnosis of the human condition. We are sick, Jesus says. And not only are we we sick and, and kind of victims of this foreign power that is sin, that's part of it, but also we're sinners by choice. We're rebels. We want to run away from God and do things our own way. And there are consequences for that sin. It's separation from God, death, judgment, hell. We have to get the diagnosis right because the diagnosis will determine the treatment. Right? And we're not going to go to the doctor if we don't think we're sick. Right? When do you go to the doctor? It's when you're sick. More specifically, it's when you're sick and realize you can't treat it yourself. Right? Some of us get sick and we have all sorts of like home remedies, right? Tea and lemon and honey or you know emergency packets or you know a couple shots of tequila for the gargle the sore throat or whatever you know i don't know what home remedies you have but we all have some of those things where we'll try those things first and then if those don't work okay maybe we'll go see a doctor right it's when we're sick and we come to the end of ourselves and we realize our need and so the bible reminds us The doctrine of sin teaches us we need a savior. We are sick and we need a healer. We need forgiveness. But there's more to the story here. That's part one. But again, in in relationship to considering how you view yourself, yes, you need to know that you are a sinner under the judgment of God. But also, look at what Jesus says. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So think about it. The sick need a doctor, and I am that doctor. I came to call sinners. So that's why I'm here, for sinners, to heal them, to transform them, to seek and save the lost. So Jesus loves and welcomes sinners. And we see that in his words and 
his actions. I mean, think about the whole setting, the whole context for this passage that we've talked about already before. He's at Levi's house at this dinner party with the shadiest of the shady. Sharing a meal. Now, in this culture, that would mean more than just some kind of harmless potluck. Eating a meal around the table established this bond of friendship, this bond of intimacy, uh, this embrace. It would form a bond of friendship and acceptance and affirmation. So it's, it's one thing to rub shoulders with the sinners out there. It's another thing entirely to have them in your home or to be in their home around their dinner table. And we know the same is true today, right? There's something powerful about food, about a shared meal. If you've had someone over in your home for a meal or you've gone over to someone else's home for a meal, there's a bond there. There's almost a a next level of friendship and intimacy that you reach with them through that. And so we see in this unsavory dinner party, this picture of the heart of God. Because the Bible describes the kingdom of God like a feast, oftentimes, a banquet, a gathering at the table to celebrate where God will be with his people, where we'll eat and drink together. And this is a foreshadow of that day. Yes, my people have fallen into sin, but I love them and want to be with them and heal them. And so the gospel tells us both that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we are deeply loved by God. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And see, the Pharisees underestimated the power of God to redeem and transform. See, in their minds, there were categories of people, clean and unclean, the sinners and the righteous. And the sinners were the people you stayed away from because they would make you unclean. They would infect you. They would taint your life and drag you down. And certainly we see some biblical basis for that in the Old Testament. God wanted his people to be clear on the reality of righteousness and unrighteousness, clean and unclean, the need for forgiveness, the need to be cleansed. But the Pharisees took this too far, and they simply saw sinful people as people to stay away from, whereas Jesus sees an opportunity to engage in a redemptive way. Because he goes to this dinner party. And you see, he's not just affirming everything that they do. Saying, yeah, no problem, guys. There's this call to discipleship. But you see in his words, I came to call sinners. He wants them to follow him and learn his ways. And so we we come as we are, but we are not called to stay as we are. As we walk with Jesus, he changes us and transforms us. God takes what is broken and he heals it. He takes our sinful hearts and he heals us and changes us. And so let's let's do a little work then to bring this together and how to apply this this morning as we think about our relationship with ourselves, ourselves. These events show us some key truths about who we are according 
to Scripture and the shape of the gospel. Yes, we are sinful and in deep need of a Savior. And we are loved and invited to receive the grace of God. We are so sinful that we needed a Savior. We are so loved that Jesus was willing to come and die for us. Both of these things are true. Because often today, here's why this is hard for so many of us, is we have a hard time holding those two truths together at the same time. In the church and in the culture at large, we want to separate those two things and say it's either you know sinful, negative talk, and we're bad, or we are loved and great and awesome, and you can't put those things together, right? I bet even as I'm talking this morning, there may be some of us here that are having a hard time with this message because it's like he's being too soft on sin and and joking too much about the sinners around Jesus and making uh, too light of that. And we need to be more serious on sin. And then there are some of us on the other side who are like, I don't know, this love and acceptance thing um, is, you know, doesn't include talking about sin. And so he's being too negative, talking about the reality of sin and we're sinners. And he used the H word hell and talked about judgment. And we're not sure that we're okay with that, right? There are different camps that have a hard time putting these things together. Some of us will lean towards emphasizing our sin. And, and maybe, maybe many of you are here this morning. You're like, I don't need a reminder um, about my depravity. Like I come in this morning, a broken man or a broken woman, and I'm haunted by my past, and I feel like a failure, and I feel worthless, or feel unlovable. And it's really hard for people in that place to see the love of God, and the forgiveness of God, and the invitation from Jesus to come and be with him. Others, though, will lean towards emphasizing love and grace and acceptance and really positive self-talk and you're great and we're all great and you deserve everything that you want and there's nothing wrong with you and no regrets and God loves you no matter what. And it's really easy for us to say all that positive talk about love and celebration, but it's really hard for people in that place to acknowledge. But, you know, also sin is real and I need to repent and I need a savior and judgment for my sin is real. Let me give you an example. Um, A few weeks, months ago, in the recent past, there was this horrific tragedy where a wide receiver in the NFL for the Las Vegas Raiders had uh, gotten a DUI, drank too much, drove, uh, got in a car crash, I think it was in Las Vegas, and killed a woman uh, in the other car. He survived, killed a woman, and maybe a child as well. I can't remember exactly, but at least one person died, maybe two. Uh, and just horrific events, right? Horrific. And, uh, and he, you know, understandably was just condemned and criticized, you know, on, online and articles, social media, like out uh, just a ton, okay? And uh, again, understandably so. No excuse for what he did. Consequences for what he did. Condemnation of what he did. Absolutely. You know, legal trouble he's facing because of it. Lost his 
position on the team naturally because of it. And uh, the quarterback of the Las Vegas Raiders was asked about the situation. Uh, Derek Carr is his name. Pretty sure he's a Christian. Um, and he responded and he talked about, yeah, the, the, the horrific reality of what happened. And the, just, the, just heartbroken over this grieving family, this, this woman who died, her child who, who died. Just like no excuse, just completely broken for that situation. And at the same time, and he said, you know what, and my former teammate, is also in a lot of pain right now and has a lot of people who have abandoned him and he needs love right now too. And so I'm going to be one of those people who shows love to him as well. And, and people online and in the media just were outraged. Just were, Derek, I can't believe he would say that. What about the victim's family? What about this pain he's caused? This guy, how could you possibly say that about him and stand with him and support him and whatever? And notice he didn't justify his friend's actions or say that it was okay. There was deep grief and heartbreak over it. And yet at the same time he was saying, and yet this is also a man made in the image of God who deserves love and he needs people around him right now too. And both of those things can be true. But the world was saying, no, this guy, he sinned, he messed up, he caused pain, condemn kick out, distance, cancel that man in every possible way. It's so hard for us to hold both of these things together. Sinful and loved. And so let's think about a few just kind of application points of what this could look like. If we hold those two truths together as we think about ourselves, what will that mean? It'll mean a few things. One, it'll, it'll give us the freedom to confess our sin. That's the first thing. It'll give us the freedom to confess our sin. See, because one of the reasons we don't confess our sin is because we think if we do, then we're going to be condemned and canceled and kicked out of fellowship and our friends won't want to be our friends anymore. Like if I was really honest about who I was and what's going on in my heart, people aren't going to want to hang out with me. People aren't going to want to sit next to me at church. They really knew who I was. And the thoughts in my head, I'm not going to be loved anymore. But the gospel tells us we can be honest about our sin. We can confess it because our our love and acceptance is not uh, defined by our performance or on the basis of our moral perfection. And so we can admit our need, confess our sin, repent, and still have the love and grace of God. And we experienced some of this, I think, uh, yesterday at the men's breakfast. Once a month, we have a men's breakfast, and we um, have discussion questions, and testimony is shared. And But our discussion questions yesterday were about sin and confessing sin and where we have failed and where we need to repent. And it was a, it was a powerful conversation where we could just be together and take off our, our masks. We still had our COVID masks on, but, you know, more figuratively what I'm talking about, take off our mask where we pretend, yeah, it's all good. Everything's good. I'm fine. And we're able just to be broken men in front of one another, confessing our, our sin and our, our need for God's grace. So I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you, you've been carrying unconfessed sin, you've, you've buried it 
because you think if it comes to the light, it will, it will ruin you. I invite you to confess it and experience the freedom that comes from walking in the light. Confess it, yes, to the Lord, but also to another human being, a brother or sister. See, the gospel frees us to confess our sin. Also, the gospel gives us the freedom to be humble. Again, a similar idea, our our love and acceptance is not based on our moral record and our perfection and our obedience and and looking maybe better than other people. And so we can kind of uh, lay aside the exhausting tendency to compare everyone and everything with ourselves and try to puff ourselves up. We can be free from the impulse to connect everything back to ourselves. We can rest and be humble and acknowledge our need before God. You know, the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible also says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So think about it. I read a blog. I can't remember where I saw this recently, but I heard a pastor put it together this way, saying, you cannot avoid humility. You're going to be humbled either way. Your only choice is will it be voluntary humility or involuntary humility. Either you can humble yourself before God, and you can choose to do that now, or God's going to have to do it for you. And it's going to be a lot less painful if you choose to do it now. Humility is coming either way. You can just choose if it's voluntary or involuntary. And so would you choose to humble yourself before God, acknowledge your need and your sin? Also, friends, the gospel tells us that we are are welcomed to the table of God. Despite our past, our failures, we can be reminded that Jesus loves us. And that's something that some of us really need to hear this morning, that you're here and you're just not fully convinced that God loves you or that God would want relationship with you because of the shame of your past or the shame of your present situation. And yeah, on the surface, you would acknowledge like on paper, yeah, God loves everybody and there's this invitation to come and trust him, but you're, you know, in the depths of your heart, not really sure that applies to you. Would you see that we're all invited, that God does love you and welcome you to be with him? Some of us come to church and we're like, you know, I'm not really sure I'm supposed to be here or like God really wants me here. I'm not really sure I'm welcome here because, again, of my past or my present or whatever. Reminds me of this time I was uh, in Colorado back in Denver at the church I worked at before working here. And and me and a friend uh, who was also a pastor at the church went out to lunch. There's this little restaurant not far from the church. And we go there and we, we park in the parking lot. I'd never been there before. And there's like no cars in the parking lot. So that was our first warning. And then we, we walk up. There's like this weird spiral staircase that you walk up to get to the, the entrance in the dining room. We walk Again, nobody. Uh, we weren't even sure. One of the doors was kind of like hitched a bit. We're like, is this even supposed to be open? We're not sure. But it's, you know, we looked at the wall and it had the hours posted. And it was, this was about like noon. Okay, so it's lunchtime. And it says they're open. And so we don't see anybody and the doors kind of, but we're going to, you know, push through and go in anyways. We walk in. I kid you not, the lights are not on. 
it's lunchtime at a restaurant. The lights aren't on. It's this like really dim. There's a little bit of light coming in from the windows. So we turn the lights on, okay, in the restaurant. And we're like, you know, poking our heads in. We probably should have turned back, but we just kept looking. We're like, you know, excuse me, like, is this, you guys open? And this, this one woman, bless her heart, <laughs> comes out of the kitchen and says, oh, hey, yeah, 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 we're open. You know, come on in. And, and she leads us into the dining room, which uh, looked more like someone's living room. Okay, that on a couple of the tables, there were like, there was mail, you know, scattered, newspapers, open. I kid you not, there was a cat sleeping on a chair. I'm not making this up. There was a cat sleeping. So picture all this. Lights are off, doors weird, uh, cat on the chair, you know, mail and newspapers open, no one else in the place. We're like, we should leave. We should not be here. This is not okay. And But we actually were brave enough. We ordered something off the menu. We ate our lunch. I lived to tell about it. And um, it was a very strange experience. But I think about that, and I, I laugh for many reasons, but, but also it, it's this picture of sometimes how we feel when we come to church and we're like, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be here. Like, I'm not sure if the people who run this place want me here. You know, I'm not sure if God wants me here. I'm not sure if this, you know, they're prepared for me and my story and whatever. I'm, I'm not sure. It just feels like something's up. I'm not sure I'm supposed to be here. And yet the gospel tells us that we are welcomed and invited. God is ready for us, wants to meet with us. You're not going to find a cat sleeping on the chair in church, hopefully. Please don't bring your cat to church. But you see, God's ready to welcome us. Jesus died for us. And friends, the last thing I'll say is that the gospel, if we hold these things together, the reality of our sin and the reality that we are loved by God is that there is great hope for healing and change. Right? If we don't admit there is a problem, then there's going to be difficulty changing or solving that problem. But Jesus says he's a doctor for the sick. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're discouraged about a lack of progress in your life or in your heart, or you have this, you know, wonder, will things ever be different? Will I ever be different? Will I ever overcome this, this sin or this struggle? Will things ever change? Will the situation ever change? And Jesus says he's a doctor for the sick. So there's hope for healing, that we come as we are, sinful and broken, and yet he doesn't leave us as we are. There's this invitation to, to growth, to new life, to have a new heart and a new life with him, both now and forever. And so as we think about ourselves, your relationship with yourself, would you remember those two truths? That yes, you have sin in your life that you need to repent of and bring to the Lord, but at the same time, you are deeply loved by Christ, by the God of the universe, and he invites you to put your faith in him, to be forgiven and walk with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the truths of Mark chapter 2, that you came and you wanted to be with us. Even in our sin and our need and our, our brokenness and our rebel hearts, you have extended grace to us. You have forgiven all who trust in you, Jesus. Your righteousness is given to us through faith. 
So Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning. If there's anyone here who's just just broken over the reality of their sin, I pray that you would encourage them, lift their eyes to you to see that you have forgiven them. And if there is anyone here who is not broken over the reality of their sin and thinks that sin isn't a big deal, I pray that you would convict them by the power of your spirit and that they would come to you and experience your grace and love. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.